Welcome to Fresh Image. Fresh Image is a nonprofit Catholic ministry committed to providing individuals and communities with resources to facilitate the full flourishing of the image of God in each and every single human person. Not only will you find hundreds of articles, convenient audios and presentations on our beautiful faith, but also catechetical resources to be used in the classroom, at the parish, and at the kitchen table. Today, we are happy to present Fresh Image Gospel Reflections from our founder, Tony Crescio. Tony reminds us that it is when we look into the mirror of Scripture that we discover the unique image of God we have each been created to be. My dear friends in Christ, the last two Sundays we have celebrated the unleashing of heaven, as it were. Two weekends ago, the Easter season culminated with the Feast of Pentecost, celebrating the coming of the Holy Spirit. And last weekend, we celebrated one of the two mysteries at the center of the Christian faith, the mystery of our triune God, in essence one, but in persons three. Today then, we come to the solemnity of the body and blood of Christ, traditionally referred to as Corpus Christi. With this celebration, the cloud of mystery which has descended upon and enveloped us over the last two weeks now reaches its thickest state. For the mystery which we celebrate today is not only invisible, but visibly invisible. The mystery daily made present at the Eucharistic Liturgy of the Church, and which she sets before us for more intense contemplation this day, confronts us with the reality that the Son of God became incarnate, not to bring peace, but a sword to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother, as our Lord says in the Gospel of St. Matthew. I realize it may seem odd to begin a reflection upon the Eucharist, the sacrament of unity, in this fashion, but history makes this an unavoidable fact. The Church's doctrine concerning the Eucharist has more than any other doctrine, perhaps, caused much tension and division within the body of Christ. The reasons for this are, no doubt, numerous. However, ultimately the root of the problem seems to be that we suffer from what Augustine would call a pedestrian imagination. Now, before I am misunderstood, I am not in any way suggesting that the mystery we celebrate in a special way today is somehow a fanciful creation of the mind. Nor am I suggesting that the divine presence made present upon the altar is a creation of faith. For the Lord animates the elements of creation with His divine presence, regardless of whether or not we choose to allow our hearts to experience what our senses cannot. Instead, I use the word imagination today in terms of a true way of knowing, a method of discovery, which enables an encounter of the most profound kind, making present to us that which is out of reach of the most advanced science and technology. Therefore, I would suggest that in order to even begin appreciating the mystery brought before us for contemplation today, we must leave behind our usual form of knowing. Instead, we must follow the gift of faith we have received and the love which the Holy Spirit has ignited within us to lift up our hearts to a place where loving becomes knowing and faith becomes seeing. To do so is to participate in the Eucharistic imagination that has animated the Church for centuries and which, as we shall see, has led her to an ever deeper understanding of the gifts she receives daily at the altar of our Lord. Animated by such faith and love, we may have the firm hope that what the Church teaches us concerning this sacred mystery is true, for they are the words of the Beloved, whispering to us that which she has experienced in the embrace of the one who loved her to the point of death, even death on a cross. To begin, we would do well to recall the meaning of the word Eucharist. The word Eucharist comes from the Greek word Eucharistia, which means thanksgiving. 
and it is precisely a response of thanksgiving which this most august sacrament intends to evoke. Not, however, on an emotional level, as though we are simply responding to a material gift, or as a polite response to a gentle reminder of the price that has been paid for our salvation. Rather, a thanksgiving that describes our lived orientation, animating our every moment. We find this most crucial aspect of the Christian life highlighted by our readings for today. As always, it is important that we recall to mind that the same God made present during our Eucharistic celebration has been at work, educating and nourishing the human family since time immemorial, leading us towards an ever-increasing state of perfection. In our first reading for today from the book of Deuteronomy, we once again join the people of Israel as they journey through the desert. Here the people of God are nearing the end of their journey and are preparing to enter the promised land and their leader Moses is exhorting them not to forget the divine providence which had seen them this far. Remember, Moses tells them, the long way that the Lord your God has led you these forty years in the wilderness. Why the reminder now? They are about to enter the promised land, a land flowing with milk and honey, and though they will have to overcome much adversity in order to possess it for themselves, possess it they will, in accordance with the promise made to them by God. And, as humans are inclined to do, they will assume they have done this on their own, under their own power and according to their own volition. In short, they will become proud because of what they perceive as their own accomplishment. Moses is therefore trying to help them avoid succumbing to pride by reminding the Israelites that they have been the special beneficiaries of the tender care of the divine love, and thus, what they are about to receive is sheer gift. Unfortunately, as heard from the pew, there are several verses left out of Moses' message to the people. I say unfortunately because though we are reminded of the manna in accordance with today's solemnity, we miss a whole slew of other examples. In the omitted verses, Moses reminds the people how God has provided for their clothing and physical well-being. And more than this, God has not provided for the people from afar, but God has been continually present to them as a loving parent disciplining them as a parent disciplines a child, teaching them to live life as it was meant to be lived. And this was all done precisely so that they could arrive at the point they were now, on the verge of inheriting and occupying a land of their own, a land where they could live in freedom, a land which would easily provide for all of their material needs, a life whose description echoes that of Eden, provided that the people did not forget their God or misremember how all this came about. At this point, we would do well to briefly expand on the manna, which plays a central role in all of this. The psalmist refers to the manna as the bread of angels in Psalm 78. And in chapter 16 of the book of Exodus, the manna given by God to the people of Israel to sustain them in their journey through the desert is called the bread from heaven. I want to dwell on chapter 16 of the book of Exodus for a moment in order to highlight two things about the manna God gives to the people. First, we read in Exodus that this miraculous bread from heaven was provided by God for the people daily and in the amount that each needed to satisfy their hunger. Such was the case with the exception of the sixth day of the week. On this day, the people were to gather double what they needed in order to be able to refrain from the work of collecting manna on the Sabbath and thereby appropriately observe the Lord's day of rest. And in order to ensure that these rules were followed, if the people tried to store up more than needed, planning ahead, as it were, to avoid not having any the following day just in case God forgot to send them manna, this miraculous bread would spoil after a day, again with the exception of the Sabbath when God had told them to keep extra. The miraculous giving and qualities of the bread brings us to our second point. 
All of what has been said up to now makes clear that while the manna did indeed provide the people of Israel with daily sustenance, it was also much more than a simple food to be consumed. Instead, based on its nature as a literal food, the manna was also a sign of a much deeper truth. For our purposes, we can break this into two points. First, the people cannot plan ahead, as it were, and store up the necessary food that would provide them with another day of life because the food would spoil. In setting up the dynamics of the giving and consumption of the manna in this way, God was teaching the people a deep metaphysical truth, which is that life is gift through and through. As creatures, we simply have no existence in ourselves, which is precisely what it means to be a creature. Rather, we are radically dependent upon God, the only one who is in himself for every solitary second of our lives. If even for one moment God should cease to sustain our existence by gracing us with a share in His, we would simply perish. Of course, God would never do this, because once God says yes to life, He never goes back on His word, not even when that life rejects Him and refuses to acknowledge its dependence on Him. Secondly, the people are given this gift of life for one purpose, to give honor, glory, and praise to God. This lesson is given by God to the people in the command to refrain from collecting food on the Sabbath. Instead of working to collect their daily bread, the people were to dedicate themselves to observing this weekly celebration. Taken together, then, the message becomes clear. The people are given life in order to fulfill the purpose for which God had set them free from slavery in Egypt, which was repeatedly stated to Pharaoh. God does not just say to Pharaoh, Let my people go. Instead, God has a purpose for the liberation of the people of Israel, which he communicates to Pharaoh through Moses. God says, let my people go so that they may worship me. With all of this in mind, we now turn to our gospel reading for today from the Gospel of John. John chapter 6 is Jesus' famous bread of life discourse. Our particular passage, which is only a very, very small section of the entire discourse, comes near the end of it and begins with Jesus saying, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. Whoever eats of this bread will live forever, and the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. There are two items of special note in these words. First, the phrase with which our Lord begins here should immediately remind us of the manna, because he describes himself with literally the same words God had described the manna to Moses, that is, bread from heaven. The second detail to notice is veiled by the translation. The verb translated as eats is the Greek word phago, which means to eat, carrying the connotation of plain old eating. This is perhaps odd enough when approached with a pedestrian imagination. However, it becomes even more bizarre when we take a closer look at Jesus' response following the objection of some of his listeners who do suffer from a pedestrian imagination and ask, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? This is basically the very same question asked by some Christians roughly 1,500 years later, and which some still ask today. Now, one would think if these individuals had the wrong idea, Jesus would clarify and say, Wait a second, you're misunderstanding what I'm saying. I'm speaking metaphorically. But Jesus does the exact opposite. He doubles down and intensifies his language. In verse 54, the verb Jesus uses changes from phago to trogo, which means to gnaw, munch, or crunch. Then, after intensifying his language, Jesus assures the listeners, the one who eats this bread will live forever. Important to notice here is the effect that Jesus says consuming this bread will have. Mere bread only allows us to live a short while. 
And even the manna which God provided for the people of Israel in the desert did not have the power to give eternal life. Jesus even makes this contrast himself in the last verse from our gospel for today. He says, This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like that which your ancestors ate, and they died. But the one who eats this bread will live forever. How could a metaphor give us eternal life? How can an empty commemorative sign have this effect? The answer is that it can't, period, full stop. We have but one last question to ask then. When was this bread given? We are told in the Gospels of Matthew and Luke that on the night before he died, the Savior of the world took a loaf of bread, and after blessing it, he broke it, gave it to his disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. Jesus then did the same with a cup of wine, saying, Drink from it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. For brevity's sake, we may point out three things here. First, the math is pretty straightforward here, folks. Jesus says he will give his body as bread with particularly clear and intense language in the Bread of Life discourse and then does exactly what he said he would do at the Last Supper. Those who want to argue something different based on Scripture, to say nothing of the first 1,500 years or so of the life of the church, have a very steep hurdle to overcome. Second, we should notice Jesus is offering his whole self to his disciples, his whole life, in order that they might literally take it into themselves and be united to him in a manner more profound than had ever been imagined. This unity is far greater than any we experience with another human person, and thus so profound and impenetrable that if not accepted with the faith of love, goes unnoticed and wasted. What's more, it is precisely because the incarnate Son of God gives us this share in his life that this bread produces the result Jesus says it does. It gives eternal life. Who alone can give eternal life except God? The third point follows and is found in the words of the Savior himself. This gift is given for the forgiveness of sins. If we understand that sin is separation from God, what else can this mean? than that this bread gives true life because it eliminates the separation between us and God by actualizing this very unity. If we may be so bold, we can in a certain sense even say that the purpose of the life, death, and resurrection of the incarnate Son is the Eucharist. For by receiving Him in the Eucharist, our created purpose is achieved here and now, complete unity with the God who loved us into being. Of course, we experience this reality surrounded in a veil of mystery, that is, under a sacramental sign, this side of eternity. That said, this makes it no less the very same reality which the saints will experience for eternity, the embrace of the love which called us into being from the first moment of conception and which will call us home the moment we draw our last breath. My friends, the reception of the Eucharist, the bread from heaven, is a foretaste of heavenly life. For in receiving the Eucharist, we are united with our God through, with, and in the second person of the Trinity, the Son of God. To be sure, we will never fully appreciate nor understand this gift, this side of eternity. I suppose if we could somehow, the experience would be so overwhelming, we would die of love. Coming back full circle to where we began then, we may make this final point. After God had created Adam and Eve in the garden, he set them free to experience all the beauty of the masterpiece he had just created, with only one exception. Tragically, in defiance of that exception, our first parents proudly reached up into a tree and attempted to seize life for themselves and on their own terms, signified by the grasping of the fruit, 
opening the door for death to enter the world. Today we stand at the foot of another tree, our Savior's cross, the new and definitive tree of life, where we receive the bread of life, the only bread that can grant us eternal life. Such a gift is not seen with human eyes, but only with the church's Eucharistic imagination, an imagination which, when nourished by the very life of Christ, leads us intuitively to respond Eucharistically, that is, in thanksgiving. When we allow this response of thankfulness to permeate and animate every moment, every action, every word, every breath of our lives, the whole of our lives becomes a life of worship, a life which gives glory to God in the highest. Thank you for listening to this week's Gospel Reflection. For more resources, please visit us at freshimage.org. And remember, when you live a fresh life, you will be a breath of God's fresh, life-giving air to the world.